Morning. How are we all doing? Good? That's good. Nearly every teenager growing up in a Christian home faces a crunch moment. At primary school, you're usually basically just kids having fun and playing tag doesn't seem to be in conflict with what you're hearing at home. Eventually, however, you get to high school and people start believing and doing a lot of things which are very different from what we've heard at home. And now comes the crunch point. Do I speak up and stand out as different or do I refuse to participate in some things people are doing and in doing so stand out as being different or do I cave and begin to give in to the behaviours which some of my friends might be doing? What happens is you compromise. You don't speak up the first time you should. You decide to do something which you know is wrong. But you justify to yourself that I won't take it as far as other people. And the creep begins. Once compromised, it is way easier to compromise again. Once we've been silent when we should have spoken, it's way easier to be silent again. Until we begin to live an unsatisf- the unsatisfying life of a compromised person, pre- pretending to be cool and worldly and rebellious, but not fully comfortable there, and pretending to follow Jesus, and not quite comfortable there either. But it's not just teenagers that have this wrestle, is it? Adults start a new job. They want to be liked. They want to fit in. So they witness some behavior or another that they should speak up about and don't. And after that, you don't feel like you can because I should have said it the first time until we get accustomed to that ungodliness. Or you remain with colleagues who are slandering a co-worker and you say nothing because you don't want to be unpopular. But after a while, the compromise creeps until you yourself begin to join in the slander as well. Rarely does a Christian wake up one morning and say, I've decided what I really want in life is a compromised life. Half after Jesus, half in love with the world, and integrity in neither. That's my goal. It doesn't happen like that. No, it's a series of choices that lead to more choices that lead us further and further into a life of compromise and the bleak place that takes us. Well, I want to tell you this morning that if this is you, there is hope, that there is a way out 
of the compromised life that leads to joy and happiness to no longer be stuck in a place of semi-darkness. And I think that's where our passage leads us to this morning. So I pray that as we go through this text, the Word of God leads you to a place of an uncompromised life filled with the joy of Christ. If you have your Bible there, you can open up to John chapter 18, and we will read from 15 to 27 this morning. John 18, 15 to 27. Simon Peter was following Jesus, as was another disciple. That disciple was an acquaintance of the high priest, so he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard. But Peter remained standing outside by the door. So the other disciple, the one known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the girl who was the doorkeeper and brought Peter in. Then the servant girl who was the doorkeeper said to Peter, You aren't one of this man's disciples too, are you? I am not, he said. Now the servants and the officials had made a charcoal fire because it was cold. They were standing there warming themselves and Peter was standing with them warming himself. The high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. I've spoken openly to the world, Jesus answered him. I've always taught in the synagogue and in the temple where all the Jews gather, and I haven't spoken anything in secret. Why do you question me? Question those who heard what I told them. Look, they know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officials standing by slapped Jesus, saying, Is that the way you answer the high priest? If I have spoken wrongly, Jesus answered him, give evidence about the wrong. But if, rightly, why do you hit me? Then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. They said to him, You aren't one of his disciples too, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, said, Didn't I see you with him in the garden? Peter denied it again. Immediately a rooster crowed. Amen. All right, recap, just to fill you in, uh, if you weren't here last week, Jesus and his disciples had been in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus had been arrested by the Jewish authorities and a Roman company of soldiers. Now, Jesus clearly pointed everything at himself, took all of the blame, so to speak, so that the disciples were able to go free. Jesus was then taken by guard to the house of Annas. Now, we're going to pause quickly, because some of you who are paying very careful attention may have come up with a contradiction here in this passage. It says they took Jesus to the high priest's house, Annas. Then you will note at the end of the passage we've looked at, Annas has had enough of questioning Jesus and sends him where? To the high priest. How many high priests do we normally have? One. All right, so we've got a little bit of a problem. Here's a little bit of history. Drew spoke about nerds earlier. If you're a history nerd, um, you're a wonderful person, basically. uh, Anyway, I like history. Let's get into this. Annas was the current high priest, Caiaphas, father-in-law. 
And Annas had been high priest from AD 6 to AD 15 when Pontius Pilate's predecessor had removed Annas from office. What's important about this is the Jews conferred the office of high priest normally for life and only the Jews could change the office of the high priest. A Roman authority had removed Annas from the office. How do you reckon the Jews took that? Not well. So most of the Jews still in fact regarded Annas as the high priest because God had put him there and Roman authorities couldn't remove him from that position. Right? So that's the first big thing. Annas was popularly regarded as the high priest. Secondly, five, get that, five of Annas's sons had served in the role of high priest. So again, Roman authorities are starting to move them in and out, but five of his sons had been in the role of high priest, and now Caiaphas, is his son-in-law, is the current high priest. Annas was viewed, by and large, by everyone as the patriarch of the priestly family. You're starting to get the significance of who Annas is? Making sense? Yeah. So when they want to first take Jesus somewhere, is it any wonder they don't go straight to Caiaphas, the current high priest? No, they take him to Annas, right? He is that patriarch of priests, is Annas. So that helps you understand why the text refers to both of them as the high priest. Annas, popularly so, Caiaphas has the Roman authority of high priest. So, Jesus is taken to the house of Annas and Peter follows along with another disciple. We're going to have to pause here again. Who is this other disciple who is an acquaintance of the high priest? Now, the word here is actually a little bit stronger than that. It's it's a well-known acquaintance, bordering on a friend. There's a disciple, apparently, who has access to the high priest Annas's courtyard. Who is the mystery disciple? Well, we've got basically two options, and you can pick which one you want to go for. Uh, I'll tell you which one I lean to in a moment. Firstly, an unknown disciple. We simply may have had a disciple who witnessed what was going on and then used their status to follow Jesus uh, and then used their position to get Peter inside as well. Uh, So basically, we just have somebody in some potentially authoritative position uh, who uses that to include themselves and Peter. Uh, So that is one option, the unknown disciple. Secondly, it was John who was writing this gospel. Now remember, John comes from a potentially wealthy family. We know that they employed fishermen. So potentially, we've got a wealthy family here uh, who had staff working for them. Also remember that rabbis were expected to have a job as well. Think of Paul being a tent maker. So John critically leaves himself unnamed, often in the Scriptures, or refers to himself as the disciple that Jesus loved. Weighing up these options, there's an intimate knowledge in the Gospel of John of what happens in the courtyard. We're going to read about a specific type of fire fire shortly, all of those sorts of things, which makes me lean to the fact that this was probably the Apostle John, who was an acquaintance 
acquaintance of the high priest and was able to use that. It doesn't refer to himself by name. So I'm going to refer to John in the text, but if you want to take the other option, uh, feel free to do so. All of this is just to set the scene, right? So this is what's going on in the passage. Now we get to the crux of the issue. John walks straight through. The person at the door, this girl, knows who he is and knows he's an acquaintance of the high priest. In our text, she doesn't stop Peter. Peter himself stops outside the door. That's important. Remember, this is Annas, the patriarch of priests, the guy who was seen to not only have been the high priest, but in one sense is still the high priest. His kids are high priests. And Peter is so unsure of himself, he is not willing to walk into the door, to walk into the presence of the high priest. So John goes back, speaks to the girl at the door, probably says to Peter, Peter, it's okay, and begins to walk him in to the home of Annas. Then the servant girl notices Peter and says, you aren't one of this man's disciples, are you? Panic moment. Remember what I said? Peter was already unsure about this. This is the house of Annas. Peter has no relationship with the man. Now, what you need to know is this tone from this girl is not accusatory. This girl would know that John was a disciple of Jesus. There is no reason at this point to freak out on the behalf of Peter. In fact, in the original language here, the tone is much more along the lines of, surely not, you're not one of the disciples. In other words, they'll let anyone in, will they? That's the tone of her statement. It's like, Peter, you're a scruffy, obnoxious, low-down, not-wealthy fisherman. Uh, surely you're not one of his disciples. Gee, would Jesus even let you follow him? That's the tone of what the girl says. Now, Peter has a choice, doesn't he? He's confronted at the door by someone young, someone who's an acquaintance of the person that he is with, someone who can walk him right in there. Surely Peter at this point could simply stand on the truth. But there's a moment of compromise. In Peter's mind, I would suggest, our text doesn't tell us, but I would suggest that he would think to himself, well, I simply need to tell a small lie in order to get inside. I'm doing this for Jesus. I want to follow Jesus. If I tell a small lie, I get to, to go and be a part of this. It's only one compromise, right? One compromise, one lie to get past the door. And so the spiral begins. One denial, one compromise, justified in our mind for being for a good reason, that compromise, church, means it's way easier to compromise next time. That compromise means that in our mind, we have stepped over a boundary and it's much easier to step the next time. 
So Peter enters with making a compromise in his faith. Then we read, they warm themselves by a charcoal fire due to the cold. And as I said, this leans me towards it being John. Now our story pivots. It picks up in verse 19 back to Jesus. So we've pivoted on the disciples and now we turn to Jesus. The high priest, in this case Annas, questions Jesus about his disciples and teaching. Jesus says he has spoken to the world. He has taught openly in the temple and synagogues where all the Jews gather. He has not spoken anything in secret. What's Jesus getting at here? He's not saying that he never spoke to the disciples away from the public eye. Of course they had conversations when they weren't in the synagogue. What Jesus is saying is this, that the teaching Jesus gave in the synagogue, in the marketplace, wherever it might have been, was the same things he was saying when he was in private. In short, he is saying to these guys, I didn't publicly try to start a revolution and overthrow Caesar. And he's saying, in private, away from the public eye, I did not try to start a revolution and overthrow Caesar. In other words, in the public, Jesus taught of the coming of the kingdom of God, and privately, he taught about what? The coming of the kingdom of God. Jesus is saying to Annas, I am the same thing publicly as I am privately. Another wonderful way we see the character of Jesus. He's the same thing privately as he is publicly. Everyone's heard my teaching, you know what I stand for, and I have never ever been any different. Leading up to this, we had the prayer of Christ for his disciples and One of the key things he focused in on is that we would be kept in his name or kept in his character. Church, this is another huge challenge for us. Who you are at church this morning should be who you are at home. Who you are at church this morning should be who you are at work through this week. When you and your wife or husband sit around talking, is your conversation honoring to Jesus' character? There should be no division between church and home. Smiling at church to your brothers and sisters, slandering at home is religion, not relationship with Christ. What we see in this passage and is written for us to see is the contrast between Jesus and Peter or Jesus and us. Peter denied the truth. Peter has begun a journey of compromise. Remember who had boldly proclaimed publicly, Lord, I would die for you really out of step with who Peter proves to be in this case. For Peter, he's living out the life of being a slave to sin. But you and I don't have to. 
If you put your faith in Jesus, if you put your faith in the cross, as Drew talked about earlier, if we've been born again of the Spirit and our old nature has been crucified with Christ and the life we now live, we live in and for Jesus, then that is our true nature. And so we must put to death the sin nature whenever it rears its head, even when we're in private. Right? Our true nature now is the character of Christ kept in his name and that is our nature regardless of where we're at or who we're with. Amen? Who we're with at school? Who we're with at uni? Who we're with at work? Who we're with on Saturday night? Our true nature should be the same because it's the nature of Christ that we're being kept to regardless of our circumstance. Peter denied the truth. Peter had begun a journey of compromise. Christ pivots and he will not back down from stating the truth. Right? This is the pivot that John is giving us. Peter compromises, Jesus does not. My life publicly and privately, says Jesus, is consistently the same. It is truth. Meanwhile, Peter begins a life of denial. Secondly, what Jesus is doing is pointing out the sin and the hypocrisy of those questioning him. Jesus stands on the truth and he expects others to do the same. In the time of Jesus, if we look at the rabbinical writings, it seems likely that you weren't allowed in a trial to question the accused. Rather, you questioned the witnesses to prove your case. So this is what we actually read in rabbinical writings, not from the scriptures, so it's not as watertight, but we read that to prove your case, you didn't interview the accused, you interviewed the witnesses. So what is Jesus saying? I have taught publicly where the Jews all gather. Why do you question me? Question the literal thousands of people who have heard what I have to say. In accordance with your own rules, go and talk to them and find out the truth. It's a pretty fair point, isn't it? If that's their standard. Jesus has publicly declared all of his truth. He's been open with everyone. Talk to them. There are literally Thousands and thousands of people they could have interviewed. But no, this is a trumped-up trial. A kangaroo court in order to achieve a predetermined outcome. That's just the reality of what's going on. In verse 22, we see the response to Jesus' truthful and logical argument. An official slaps him, right? What else can they do? but somehow try and blame Jesus. Because yet again, Jesus' actions, words, and demeanor are exposing their darkness to the light. And they love the darkness. I picture that slap as kind of trying to extinguish a flame to stop it burning. Right? That's effectively what's going on in the courtyard. 
Jesus, of course, does not back down. He knows he's going to the cross. He knows that this trial will not be fair. But he asks for it to be carried out correctly. He points out its flaws in order that forevermore we have this record of Christ standing on the truth. Jesus is sinless and was crucified for your sin and mine. So Jesus continues, if what I have said is wrong, give evidence of where it was wrong. If it was right, why hit me? How, do you get the character of Christ here? He's just not rattled. He's just standing on the truth and the darkness does not like it. What's their answer to that? Well, this mob's had enough. Now is when they send him off to Caiaphas. Why send him to Caiaphas? Well, according to the Romans, Caiaphas is the only one with the authority to send him to Pontius Pilate. Like I said, the Jews regarded Annas as a high priest. Uh, The Romans considered Caiaphas the high priest. So only Caiaphas has the ability to send him on to Pontius. Right at this point, we've got Peter's denial of Jesus. We've got the incredible, uncompromising truth and courage of Christ. And now we'll pivot back to Peter. I love this summary from uh, this commentator called Brown. John has constructed a dramatic contrast wherein Jesus stands up to his questioners and denies nothing, while Peter cowers before his questioners and denies everything. This is the contrast that John is creating for us. So Peter is at the fire. He's already justified his denial once, already began to make his excuses to live out a life of compromise, already bowed to the pressure of the crowd, just like so many do today. So it's not surprising that he buckles again. They ask, aren't you one of his disciples? Which Peter denies. A third time, a relative of the man whose Peter ear had cut off challenges Peter and he denies it. And we are told in Mark's gospel, vehemently denies it with curses. The compromise grows. Church, this is a serious thing to deny Christ before men. I'm just going to read you Matthew 10, 32 to 33. Matthew 10, 32 to 33. Therefore, anyone who will acknowledge me before others, I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But whoever denies me before others, I will also deny him before my Father in heaven. To be denied by Jesus in heaven is to be denied salvation. It's a stark warning, isn't it? Do you think that your compromise at work, in sport, at home, at school, isn't a serious issue? To deny the character of Christ is to deny his name. 
one that you need to think through now. In an age of increasing pressure to deny Jesus. We live in the age of governments that are getting more hostile. Gay pride totalitarians who just want to force their beliefs on everybody. Growing pressure that you have to buckle your faith in order to continue to function in society. Everyone pushing this agenda to compromise Christ and his teaching. It's a very serious issue that you need to wrestle with. Will you stand on God's word and his character? But I also mentioned at the start of this message that there is hope. John has carefully illustrated for us the contrast between Jesus and Peter. The strength of Christ versus the weakness of Peter, the increasing compromise in his life. But we know, and everyone who ever finished John's gospel knows, that this is not the end of Peter's story. The death of Jesus on the cross will pay the penalty of Peter's denial of Jesus. Isn't that incredible? The death of Jesus on the cross will pay the penalty of Peter's denial of Jesus. Such is Christ's grace and mercy. The ones who are denied before the Father, will be the ones who never repent and stand on God's word or name. The ones who take a compromised life to the grave. But those who are willing to repent, to ask for, for forgiveness, there is grace and restoration. Which will you be, church? Have you been making excuses and justifying going along with the crowd in weakness of character because you are fearful and desire the approval of man. Then you must either repent and be forgiven and begin to stop the compromise of your faith or continue on your way and be denied by Jesus. The choice is clear and before you, but a failure to choose will mean in effect you have chosen denial. It takes conscious effort to take up your cross, to deny self and walk after Jesus. But when you acknowledge his death for your sin, when you live with Jesus as your goal, then you will have the joy of an uncompromised life lived for the glory of Christ. This is the challenge of our day. Jesus lives the truthful life, which none of us could. We put our faith in Jesus and we gain salvation from sin because of what Christ has done. But then we begin to follow Christ, putting him first and saying no to the world and experiencing the joy of his salvation. Church, repent of compromise and stand on the truth of God's word.
Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the contrast we have there of Peter and Jesus. Lord, we see the boldness of Christ to stand on the truth, to not allow it to be twisted or compromised. Versus Peter, who out of fear, out of worldliness, denies Christ, denies his master. Lord, the truth is in Peter we see a touch of all of it. So Lord, we thank you for the cross. We thank you that Jesus paid the penalty of our sin, even our compromise, even our denial. But Lord, your word asks us to repent, to turn away from, to renounce compromise. Lord, for the people here who are trying to live with a foot in the world and a foot in the church, Lord, I pray they would renounce the world. Lord, that they would fully trust Christ wherever he leads and experience the joy of an uncompromised life following Jesus. Lord, I pray this in and through your name. Amen.